Well, I want to uh, show you here this book here, the book I read this week called Autopsy of a Deceased Church um, by, by Tom Rader. He wrote it in, in 2014, and the book really aims <clears throat> to point out the common characteristics of churches that are on the decline or on their way to dying. Uh, Rainer just had an opportunity to see, hear about 14 different churches that had closed their doors, and so he had interviews with uh, people from those churches to talk to them about what, what was characteristic of those churches. And it was interesting, uh, though these 14 churches were diverse in their denominational or non-denominational ties or their, their different locations of where they were or their uh, local and regional demographics, they all were similar in one significant way, is they all were dead. And as Rainer said, quote, they followed paths that caused them to die. That's what the book is about. It's about the common characteristic that all churches that die walk through. And, and in this book, he points out nine different characteristics of churches that die. It's a really short book. It's about 80 pages. You can read it really quickly in probably a, two hours, perhaps. I just want to give you a, a, a summary uh, of things. Um, he said that... Um, you know, the first one is uh, that, that, that churches that are dying look to the past for their heroic things. They tell the stories of the past rather than looking forward to the future. They, they, they hold on to their worship styles of the past or their, their buildings of the past or their former pastor they don't accept in the new one because they liked their former one better. It's all about the past glory and not future aspirations. Second, the, the church doesn't change with the community. Where once many were coming to the church from the community, but because of some change, ethnic, racial, age, economic, the church moved out, and many still traveled into the church, right? But the church is no longer like the community. Another one, third characteristic, the budget towards moves inward. What happens, right? And Rainer writes this, when you conduct the autopsy of a church, you must follow the money. For where the money of the church goes, so goes its heart. For the dying church cared more for its own needs than the community and for the world. Uh, fourth characteristic of a dead church is that the Great Commission becomes the Great Omission. The Great Commission to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's what Jesus said is the Great Commission becomes the omission. Again, Rainer writes this, members of the dying church weren't willing to go into the community to reach and minister to people. They, they weren't willing to invite the unchurched friends and relatives. They weren't willing to expend the funds necessary for vibrant outreach. They just wanted it to happen without prayer, without sacrifice, without hard work. Fifth characteristic of a church that died is because they've become a preference church. Well, we like our music style. Well, we want the services to be of this length. We, we desire this color of the carpet and this color of the walls and this color of the buildings. Our activities and our programs and, and, and our need of ministers and staff it becomes my, my, my. Everything upon preference. The sixth characteristic of, of a church that dies is, um, is a short pastoral tenure. So, you know, like new pastors every two or three years following a, a similar pattern Rainer writes this, the cycle was predictable. The church was declining. The church would call a new pastor with the hope the new pastor would lead the church back to health. 
the pastor comes to the church and leads in a few changes, but the members don't like the changes. They resist, and the pastor becomes discouraged and leaves, or in some cases, the pastor is fired. Repeat cycle. It's another characteristic of, of churches. Seventh characteristic of churches that die is they rarely prayed together. Rainer notes that there were often forms of prayer, but little meaningless, passionate prayers together as a church. Where once they would gather and pray regularly, the prayer meeting became a routine. The same old people prayed over the same old things in the same old way. No, no passion for New Testament feeling people devoting themselves to prayer. Eighth characteristic of a, a church that dies, no purpose, right? Just going through the motions, just running in a rut in a bad routine. They're more interested in doing things the way they've already done rather than seeking the Lord for some new purpose, a new vision. They were just playing this game called church. And they stopped asking about what they should be doing, fearing that it might require too much effort and too much change. Ninth, dead churches obsessed over the facilities. The, the mission of the church being about the building and not about the people. They argue about the pulpit and the windows and the paint. The church building was deteriorating and the church could only argue about it. So, just want to look at that list. I went through like 60 pages of stuff, like, like that fast. Just want you to just look at that list and ask you, what about Rock Valley Bible Church? Where are we there? Is the pastor a hero? Are we changing with the community? Are we reaching out to the community? Where's our budget? Is it inward? Is it outward? What about the Great Commission? Are we laser-focused on making disciple-makers? Are we preferring just our preferences? This is our church, and we like our church, like our way. Pastoral tenure. Well, we're doing okay with that. I've been here 20 years. The church rarely prays together. Are we praying together? The church had no purpose. Do we have a vision? Do we have a purpose? Are we obsessed with our facilities as I look at the list, I see some things definitely that apply to us for sure. I see others that don't. I can see in these things the slow death of Rock Valley Bible Church as I have seen other churches in the Rockford area slowly die. I know four churches I've seen die in recent years during my tenure here as a pastor. I don't want our church to die. Do you? So here, here's, the, here's the question, right? Are we alive? Are we alive, or is Rock Valley Bible Church dead? This morning, I want to continue our series in the book of Revelation. We're going to look at the, the dead church, the church in Sardis. It's in Revelation. You can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. We've been plugging through the, the churches of Revelation. We've seen the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. Today, we get Sardis. Next time, we'll be Philadelphia and then Laodicea. And then we'll get to see chapter 4 and 5, the throne room of God. I'm super excited about that. Then the, the bowl, the, the seals are going to be opened in Revelation chapter 6. In chapter 7, we're going to see multitudes coming out of the great tri tribulation. And then we're going to see the trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. And, and on, I'm just excited to get there. But we're going through these churches, which is the audience to which John wrote. He wrote to all these churches. They all had different characteristics. Ephesus, their love had grown cold. Smyrna was persecuted they're called to be faithful unto death pergamum and thyatira are both called to forsake the false teaching and now we get to sardis the main admonition comes at the end of verse one you are dead here it goes 
And is Jesus saying, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then again, this is a, a real church with real people in Asia Minor. John was there in Patmos, and he'd written to these churches. And this morning, we see him writing to the church in Smyrna. John was his political prisoner on Patmos. And we've already looked at some of his letters, and now we're looking at the letter at Sardis. This letter begins, like every other letter begins in the church of Revelation. It begins with Jesus speaking to John, telling him to write to this angel of the church, giving a description of himself. He says, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And Jesus points out that I have the seven spirits of God. And it's a reference back to chapter 1 and verse 4 where it is the seven spirits are referred to again. It's probably a, a reference to the perfect Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, by the way, who gives life. He says, I have that. Jesus also mentioned that he has the seven stars. That, that's mentioned chapter 1 and verse 16, referring, which, which indicates that Jesus had seven stars in his hands. And these seven stars are the angels of the churches. And whether these angels are leaders of the church, or whether they're guardian angels over the church, or it's one um, just apocalyptic liter picture of some kind of leader, messenger to the church, whatever it is, leaders, angels of the church, they are meant to give life and health to the church. So, so Jesus, in his hand, what he has is he has, he has that that can give life to this dead church. So this description of Jesus, right? Here he has. He, he's got life support that he's ready to give to the church. And I say this because life and death is the issue of the church in Sardis. Here's my first point, right? We see in verse 1 a diagnosis of death, right? Verse 1 continues on this. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, in every single one of the seven churches, Jesus commends the church. To the church in Ephesus, they were commended for discernment. The church at, at Smyrna, they were commended for the hardship that they were enduring. The church in Pergamum was commended for holding fast the name of Jesus. The, the church in Thyatira was commended for their love, faith, service, and patient endurance. But the church in Sardis isn't commended for anything. It just says, I know your works. And those in Sardis are probably like, and? And Jesus has nothing good to say about them. Nothing. And after that, without giving them any encouragement to what Jesus sees good about their works, he goes straight to his criticism. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Literally, the Greek here says, you have a name that you are alive, 
but you're dead. And now, it's not that they were the, 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 the life church in Sardis as opposed to the first Baptist church down the street. Well, you've got a, a life in your name. It's not, not it. It's rightly translated, right? You have a reputation of being alive. You have this name. You have this reputation. You, you, you have, when, when people talk about the church in Sardis, they, they say, wow, that is the, that, that's, a, that's a life. That's a, that's a church filled with life. They didn't think, oh, that church over there, Sardis, oh, yeah, they're dead. Nothing going on there. No, they thought that, that church over there, there's a lot of things going on over there. There's activities, there's people, there's meeting, there's cars. Like, there's all this stuff going on. And, and from the outside perspective, their, their name and their reputation, right, was a lot of busyness. That was their reputation, right? But their reputation wasn't correct. It was a human evaluation that all was well. But the divine evaluation says all is not well in the church. The words of Jesus are echoing in my ears. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Such was the case of the church in, in Sardis. All spoke well of the church. All spoke well saying you're alive. But the divine judgment was different. The Lord said you are dead. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. He says the church was a morgue with a steeple. It's a good picture. Outside of the church communicated life, but there was death Within the church, it seemed the people of the church didn't even know that they were dead because they had this reputation of, of being alive. Whether it's outside or inside, yes, where this happened in church, the church was dead and few seemed to notice. It was a sorry thing. Tom Rader noticed this when he was talking about the churches that died. He says this, he says, It's rare for a long-term church member to see the erosion of his or her church. Growth may come rapidly, but decline usually is slow imperceptibly slow. The slow erosion is the worst type of decline for churches because the members have no sense of urgency to change. They see the church on a regular basis and they don't see the gradual decline that's taking place before their eyes, a little bit like, like kids who are growing up. You don't realize how quickly they're growing up until grandma and grandpa come and see the, the kids, whatever, two months later, like, wow, they're growing up. And so also, like older people, maybe you haven't seen them for a while, like, oh, they're getting older seen that in a few instances as well. That's what happens to church. Often the decline, Rainer continues, is in the physical facilities, but it's much more than that. The decline is in the vibrant ministries that once existed. The decline is in the prayer lives of the members who remain. The decline is in the outward focus of the church. The decline is in the connection with the community. The decline is in the hopes and dreams of those who remain. Decline is everywhere in the church, and many don't see it. And I think likewise, the case here, the church in Sardis, many didn't even see their decline. They had a reputation that they were alive, but they were dead. And few noticed the decline before their eyes, but they were in decline. But all was not lost. Jesus said there was hope, and we see that in the next point. Not only were they given a diagnosis of death, there is hope for healing. Right? Look at verse 2. It says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And here we see five clear commands of what the church should do. And I trust you can see them. Jesus says right here, wake up. Number two, strengthen what remains. Three, remember what you've received. Four, keep it. Five, repent. So let's just walk through these commands of Jesus. Says, First of all, wake up. Right, The people were in a slumber. They were snoozing. 
They need to realize that there was danger at hand, and they need to come to that reality. They need to accept the fact that the church, despite its reputation of being alive, was dead, right? They, they needed to, to wake up. They needed to say, you know what? Yeah, we're, we're dead. Not a lot happening here. That's what Tom Rainer's trying to do in this book I mentioned at the beginning of the autopsy of a dead church. He's trying to just alert people. Hey, you're dying, church. First part of this book, right? it's got two parts. The first part puts nine characteristics of the churches that have died. We've looked at those already. And the first part of the book is really to open the minds of the readers that the church is dying. Wake up, right? You need to grasp what's going on in the church. In the second half of the book, Rainer gives some hope. He gives some counsel to those who realize that their church is in trouble. And, and Rainer breaks up the response into three categories. First is, is those churches that have symptoms of dying. And just, we saw those characteristics. We have some symptoms there. The second category is for the church that's very sick. And the third category is for the church that is dying. And Rainer's counsel falls well under the, the second command here that, that Jesus gives about wake up, right? Be strengthen what remains. So the first part of the book says wake up. The second half of Rainer's book says strengthen what remains, is whatever remains of the church, right? Strengthen it. Focus on it. You're missing it, right? Whatever you need to continue to do, right? Hope it, right? Keep it going. Strengthen what remains. Strengthen what's about to die. See, right? Your works aren't complete. They're not finished. They, they need to be finished. So focus on those. And Rainer's counsel to these different churches, the, the church that's dying, Rainer basically says, die with dignity. He says, sell your building and give it to another church. Or he says, give your building to a church. Or transition to those who reside in your community. Or, or maybe merge with another healthier church and give the leadership over the church. That's what he says. Now to the church that's very sick, Rainer says, admit where you are, confess your sins to the Lord, pray for wisdom and strength, and be willing to change radically to take outward action and focus. Right? Focus outward. Right? You want to revive a church, you need to focus outward and not inward. And to the church it shows signs of dying, Maybe closer to us, some of those nine things. And I think some of those nine things can be true of every church. Right? It's just where, where things are weak, and you've got to just say, hey, we've got to hone in on that. He said this. He says, pray for opportunities to reach into the community where the church is located. Take an honest audit of how involved the church members are in the life of the church. Take an audit of how you spend your money, and make plans to minister and to evangelize your community. Right? A lot of external, outward focus there. But to see people are involved and engaged and see what you can do. Sardis had their own things to be strengthened. We have our things that need to be strengthened. And I just say, right, in this church, let's do what we need to do. Third command, Jesus says this, receive, remember what you've heard. And this is, I love this, this is the power. This is, this is the gospel right here. What you've received and heard is the gospel and the implications of the gospel. The good news that Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies to be our Savior. That He saved us by dying on the cross in our place so that we who are sinful might be reconciled to God through faith. Not by works that we do. Right? Not by being good enough before God, but through faith alone. And as we, we trust in Christ, God, through our faith, then He gives us righteousness that we don't deserve that we might stand perfect before him. And God will strengthen us then to do his will. See, we're saved by grace to do the works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in that way. And in that way, Jesus builds his church. 
And I think this is the very key to Christ building His church, remembering the gospel, being stirred by the gospel, and letting that empower us for gospel work. And really, that's, that's the fourth command here is keep it. Keep what? That is, keep what you have received and heard. Right? Keep the gospel. Obey the gospel. Follow after the ways of the Lord. Walk in those ways He's given us. Bear fruit. Right? Show yourself a light to the world. These are the sorts of things that, that Sardis is being commanded to do. And, and even the fifth one, repent. Right? Just confess those ways in which you haven't. Now, it's interesting here. This is written to a church to repent. Martin Luther, in the first theses of the 95 theses he, he nailed to the door at Wittenberg, was this, that repentance is a way of life. That you should constantly be in the, in the attitude and perspective of repenting. And turning and confessing your sin. And, and that's, that's the idea here, right? These people are in the church. They've heard about Jesus. There's lots of activity going on. He says, but you're, you're dead. So turn. And turn from whatever ways you turn from, whether it's a cold heart. Well, that's sin. Whatever way, just turning to the Lord. But there is hope for healing. Though this church is dead, there's hope. My third point here this morning is there's a surprise for sleepers. It comes the last half of verse 3. It says, if you do not wake up, the implication is if you don't wake up and if you don't strengthen what remains, if you don't remember what you've heard, you don't keep it, you don't repent, if you don't wake up, these things are not there, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. For those who don't wake up, they don't realize the church is dead. They they don't realize they need to strengthen what remains and to remember what they've heard and to keep it and repent. And, And for those people, Jesus is coming. He's coming like a thief. Now, the idea of a thief is he comes in the dark when you're sleeping, you're not aware of it. Right? Maybe you've locked the doors and you've gone to sleep, but you're, you're slumbering, right? You're, you're not awake. <clears throat> Thief comes, finds a window ajar, <clears throat> slips in, cuts the screen out, comes in and slips in and steals before you're even aware of it. It's a surprise, the thief. And the Bible often uses this imagery of a, of a thief, Matthew 24. Therefore, stay awake, Jesus says, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Right? The idea is stay awake. Because Christ is coming and you're not, you don't know when it's coming. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. But, right, for those that are sleeping, the house gets broken into. He says, therefore, Jesus says, you must be ready for the Son of Man in coming in an hour that you do not expect. Now, Jesus is talking here in Matthew 24 about the return to earth, right? A, a return when when um, he will return for the whole world to see. Right? But, but this, this case here is more that Jesus is coming to Sardis. He's going to come and you've got to give account, Sardis. Much like Jesus said to Pergamum in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you with a sword, with war. If, if not, I will come to you soon and will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Right? So you need to repent or I'm coming to you, Pergamum. It's not that Jesus is coming to the world, it's Jesus coming to Pergamum. And so likewise here in verse 3, if you're still sleeping, Jesus may come with a surprise. That's why Revelation 3 is good for us, to think about the state of our church, right? Are, are we alive? Are we even thinking about it? Are we, are we praying about it? Is it on our mind? Or are we awake? One of the things I appreciate about Tom Rainer's book is that throughout the book he puts forth prayers to pray 
He includes more than a dozen prayers in the book. Here's one of, one of his. He says this. He says, Lord, let me see my church with honesty and open eyes. Help me to grasp where we've gotten out of balance with inward and outward ministries and give our church a vision to make a difference in our community. Even more, God, use me to be a catalyst and instrument for the changes that must take place in our church. What a great prayer. It's a prayer for awakening. It's a prayer for revisioning. It's a prayer for God's revival to come. It's a, it's a prayer of personal commitment. I mean, did you hear that? He says, even more, God, use me to be the catalyst and instrument for the changes that must take place in our church. It's a little bit like the guy who wanted revival in the church. He didn't just say, well, you need to revive. He drew a circle in the ground and he says, everything in that circle, oh God, please revive. And he stood in the circle and said, just God, revive me. Rock Valley Bible Church would be revived, be alive. It's you all. I can do what I can do. Others can do what they can do, but it's all of us. Even me, use me as the prayer to be a catalyst, an instrument for changes to take place in our church. And that's where Jesus goes in verse 4. The one who says, use me, yet in verse 4, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I'm calling this a word for the worthy, just to try to keep my W's there. I tried to get white in there, but I couldn't get white in there, but white is emphasized. But here's a word for the worthy. Even within the dead church, there's life. And this is, this is encouraging, right? It's true of all the churches in Revelation. For all the problems that all they had, there are still some where Jesus says to the one who conquers, right? The one who overcomes, the genuine believer, even in the midst of a dead church, you have life. And every time you see this one, to the con- who conquers, right? There's, there's some sort of reward. And for the reward here in Sardis, you see here in, in verse 4, the reward comes with white garments. White garments are going to come. You see in verse 4, these are two, it comes to those who have not soiled their garments. And they will be clothed then in white garments. Their garments aren't soiled, but maybe they're pale or something. But then they're going to be given white garments. And, and, and soiling their garments was a, a symbolic of sin. White garments are symbolic of righteousness. We see this several times in, in Revelation. Revelation 4 verse 4 24 elders are on their, the thrones, before the throne, and they are clothed in white garments. Just the, these pure elders worshiping before the Lord. Revelation 6, verse 11, we see a white robe given to war, emblematic of the, the righteousness that these martyrs have in Revelation 6. They, they've died for their faith, and God gives them these white garments to wear. In Revelation 7, we see multitudes coming out of the great tribulation, standing before the throne, clothed in white robes, and these robes are white because they've been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And I love that about Revelation, right? The imagery is wild. You don't wash clothes with blood. Right? How many of you wash clothes and you say, oh, I need to put some grape juice there in the, in the but I'll be tied in my grape juice. That's going to help. Or, or pour some wine in there, right? Thinking that maybe the fermenting is going to clean my clothes. No, you're going to get soiled all over the place. But the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. It's apocalyptic literature. You can wash your robes in the blood of Jesus. They come out sparkling white. And here we see the church in Sardis, clothed in white garments, symbolic of their purity. The reward of the gospel to receive such garments. 
It's those, verse 4, who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, in some ways, these are, are those in, in Sardis, right? who didn't go the way of the others in the church. They didn't engage in the sins of the church, like prayerlessness or heartless activity or, or apathy or indifference, or like, eh, whatever, I'll just go do my own thing. They, they, they were involved and engaged. They were alive, walking worthy of the gospel. And, and for them comes this word of promise. Right? I will never blot their name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And as we work our way through the book of Revelation, we're going to see more about this book. This is a, a precious book. It's the book of those who have true and eternal life. To have your name in the book is your entrance ticket into the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 20. It's that last chapter when Satan is bound and thrown into the bottomless pit, the eternal lake of fire. John writes this, John 20, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So all our deeds, what they've been done, are right there to be opened up. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So to have your name in the book of life is to have everlasting life. To not have your name in the book of life is to face everlasting fire. And this is the promise. To have your name written in the book of life. Never ever to be erased. It's your promise of salvation. Your name is in the book. I'm not erasing your name. You're not being thrown in a lake of fire. You will stand before me in white garments. And Jesus is going to confess that for his father. Look at verse 5, how it continues. He says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 5. You remember what Jesus said during his last days, during his days on earth? Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Kind of gives you an opportunity and a a clue as to what it means to be worthy. Worthy ones have been the faithful witnesses to Jesus. They've confessed the name of Jesus to others upon the earth. They've shared his name to others. And just as we then have not been ashamed of the name of Jesus to take that, that name, so Christ won't be ashamed to take our name. In fact, there's the the play on, on words there about the, the names, yet you still, verse 4, have a few names in Sardis. You, you have this name that you're dead. You have this name that you're alive, but you're dead. But there are some names, some people. And I'm going to confess his name, his reputation, everything who he is before my father. It's really at this point that the title of my message is, is changing, right? Is my message title, are, are we alive? I want to change that, though. I want to say, are you alive? Are you alive? The question is not, right, on one hand, Sardis says, are we alive as a church? It's a great question for us to ask. But a second question is, are you alive as an individual? Notice there aren't many in Sardis who are alive, verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis who are alive. If there were many in Sardis that were alive, the church wouldn't be dead. But there are only a few that are alive. So what about you? A dying church is an indicative of dying people. 
How about you? Are you alive? How about this? Is your faith alive and growing? Uh, is the Word of God coming to you fresh? Meditating on it? Memorizing it? Dwelling upon the, the Word of the Lord? Thinking about it? Praying about it? Following it? Obeying it? Actively sharing it? Like These are signs of vibrancy, of, of, vibrancy of, of life. As opposed to maybe resting on your old theology that you learned a long time ago and you said, oh, I know how to do this and you kind of got in some rut. Is Christ alive in you? This comes to my last point here. Are you alive? Just a call for consideration. He was here. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the invitation in all the books, in all these letters to all these churches. He was near. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All the churches got to read everybody else's mail. And, and it could have been that as they, they went around all the churches, maybe all of them were read to everybody. So Sardis heard what Ephesus was written to Ephesus and what was written to Smyrna and what was written to Pergamum, Thyatira, and to Philadelphia and Laodicea and all the other books, knew, all the other churches knew what was going on. Oh, they're the dead church. Oh, they're the church that tolerates immorality. But that was true of them, and it's also true for us. That was written some 2,000 years ago. The Spirit is still speaking, and He's still calling us to look and consider what Sardis would have for us. And, and are you alive is my question. In fact, it might even be helpful for us to look at this nine characteristics of Tom Rainer's book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Just want you to just look at those. Maybe you can say, hmm, that one. That's the one that really strikes me. And maybe ask yourself then, is there any way that you can change the trend? Nothing is more difficult as a pastor than to have someone, and it, this has happened many times. I meet with them, and they say, I'm leaving church. I said, okay, do you need to tell me anything or why? Well, because this and this and this is wrong. I said, I think you're right. Would you like to be, help be part of that solution? No, it's your problem. See ya. And you might have that same attitude, like, uh, that's a problem. <laughs> and Steve, that's your problem, and elders is your problem. No, it's our problem. It's our pro- I'm trying. I'm trying to solve those problems. I'm trying to change. I'm trying. Are you trying? Is there any way for you to change the church that's going around? One of the last prayers that Tom Rainer shares in his book is this. This is uh, not to the dying church, but to the very sick church. He says this. I believe all things are possible through you, God. Show me what I need to do to lead my church from hopelessness to hope. And give me the courage and strength to make those changes, even those changes that may be very painful. Be a good prayer to pray. So what I want to do is I want to, as we close in prayer, I just want to read these 14 prayers that uh, Tom Rainer put in the book. Just prayer for understanding, awakening, see what's going on in church, then a prayer about the past, maybe not glory in that, maybe look towards the future. A, a prayer for being engaged in the community, right? Just 
a prayer for a budget, right, that it would be outward and not inward, a prayer for a great commission to happen in our church, like, like all these prayers just kind of going through there. And he's got 14 because he's got several before and then nine, and then he's got several afterwards to the, to the signs, a church showing signs of sickness, and the church is very sick, and to the, the dead church. And I just think, I just want to read these. You pray along. May the Lord work in our hearts. So let's pray. Oh God, open my eyes that I may see my church as you see it. Let me see where change needs to take place. Even if it's painful to me, and use me, I pray, to be an instrument of that change, whatever the cost. God, please show me. Let me be part of the solution and not the problem. Show me what I need to see. Open my eyes to your reality and give me the courage to move forward in the directions you desire. Prayer number three. God, give me the conviction and courage to be like the heroes of Hebrews 11. Teach me not to hold onto the things in the church that are my personal preference and styles. Show me not only how to let go, but where to let go, so that I may heed your commands more closely. Prayer 4. God, give me my church and me a heart for our community. Let me see the people through your eyes and give me the courage and the wisdom to let go of this church so that others who best reflect this community can lead us and teach us. Number five. Lord, help me to grasp that all the money I think I have is really yours. Help me to grasp that all the money our church has is not the church's, but yours. Give us healthy hearts to use these funds according to your purpose. Commitment number six, prayer six. Lord, remind me that I am to be a Great Commission Christian in a Great Commission church. Remind me that in your strength I am to do whatever it takes to reach out to my community with transforming power of the gospel. Prayer 7. Lord, open my eyes to the needs of others. Show me how to live more like your son who always put others' interests first and especially show me that attitude as I serve in my church. Number 8. God, please give our pastor a heart and a vision to reach and minister to people beyond our own walls. Teach me to be the kind of church member who encourages and supports our pastor so that discouragement and disillusionment does not lead to departure. Number nine, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray consistently. Teach me to be a leader in prayer in my church. And teach me to keep passionate and believing prayer as a lifeblood of this church. Number 10. God, reignite the hearts of our church members, including me, to have a passion for the gospel. Teach our children to share the gospel with others. Teach us to live as men and women who are true bearers of the good news of Jesus Christ. Remind us of our purpose. Convict us of our purpose. Empower us to live our purpose. 11. Lord, teach me the proper stewardship of all the material items you give me personally and in my church. Help me never 
let that stewardship evolve into obsession and idolatry, especially where I lose my perspective on what really matters. Twelve. Lord, let me see my church with honesty and open eyes. Help me to grasp where we have gotten out of balance and with inward and outward ministries. And give our church a vision to make a difference in our community. Even more, God, use me to be a catalyst and instrument for the changes that must take place in our church. Thirteen. I believe all things are possible through you, God. Show me what I need to do to lead my church from hopelessness to hope. And give me the courage and strength to make those changes, even those changes that will be very painful. And finally, and I will close with this, this is to the the dying church. Church, the writing is on the wall and they're closing the doors. Lord, if it is your will for your church to die, please let me know. And give me the courage and the strength to let go for your glory.